Book Three, Part Two of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book Three, A.D. Twenty to Twenty-Two, Part Two. A few days afterwards, the emperor proposed to the senate to confer the priesthood on Vitellius, Veranius, and Servius. To Falcinius, he promised his support in seeking promotion, but warned him not to ruin his eloquence by rancor. This was the end of avenging the death of Germanicus, a subject of conflicting rumours, not only among the people then living, but also in after times. So obscure are the greatest events, as some take for granted any hearsay, whatever its source, others turn truth into falsehood, and both errors find encouragement with posterity. Drusus, meanwhile, quitted Rome to resume his command, and soon afterwards re-entered the city with an ovation. In the course of a few days, his mother Vipsania died, the only one of all Agrippa's children, whose death was without violence. As for the rest, they perished. Some it is certain by the sword, others it was believed by poison or starvation. That same year, Tacferinus, who had been defeated, as I have related, by Camillus in the previous summer, renewed hostilities in Africa, first by mere desultory raids, so swift as to be unpunished, next by destroying villages and carrying off plunder wholesale. Finally, he hemmed in a Roman cohort near the river Pegida. The position was commanded by Decrius, a soldier energetic in action and experienced in war who regarded the siege as a disgrace. Cheering on his men to offer battle in the open plain, he drew up his line in front of his entrenchments. At the first shock, the cohort was driven back, upon which he threw himself fearlessly amid the missiles in the path of the fugitives, and cried shame on the standard-bearers for letting Roman soldiers show their backs to a rabble of deserters. At the same moment, he was covered with wounds, and though pierced through the eye, he resolutely faced the enemy, and ceased not to fight till he fell, deserted by his men. On receiving this information, Lucius Apronius, successor to Camillus, alarmed more by the dishonour of his own men than by the glory of the enemy, ventured on a deed quite exceptional at that time, and derived from old tradition. He flogged to death every tenth man, drawn by lot from the disgraced cohort. So beneficial was this rigour that a detachment of veterans, numbering not more than five hundred, routed those same troops of Tacferinus on their attacking a fortress named Thala. In this engagement, Rufus Helvius, a common soldier, won the honour of saving a citizen's life, and was rewarded by Apronius with a neck-chain and a spear. 
To these the emperor added the civic crown, complaining, but without anger, that Apronius had not used his right as proconsul to bestow this further distinction. Tacferinus, however, finding that the Numidians were cowed and had a horror of siege operations, pursued a desultory warfare, retreating when he was pressed, and then again hanging on his enemy's rear. While the barbarian continued these tactics, he could safely insult the baffled and exhausted Romans. But when he marched away towards the coast, and, hampered with booty, fixed himself in a regular camp, Cisianus was dispatched by his father Apronius, with some cavalry and auxiliary infantry, reinforced by the most active of the legionaries, and, after a successful battle with the Numidians, drove them into the desert. At Rome, meanwhile, Lepida, who beside the glory of being one of the Emilii, was the great-granddaughter of Lucius Sulla and Gnaeus Pompeius, was accused of pretending to be a mother by Publius Quirinus, a rich and childless man. Then, too, there were charges of adulteries, of poisonings, and of inquiries made through astrologers concerning the imperial house. The accused was defended by her brother Manius Lepidus. Quirinus, by his relentless enmity, even after his divorce, had procured for her some sympathy, infamous and guilty as she was. One could not easily perceive the emperor's feelings at her trial. So effectually did he interchange and blend the outward signs of resentment and compassion. He first begged the Senate not to deal with the charges of treason, and subsequently induced Marcus Servilius, an ex-consul, to divulge what he had seemingly wished to suppress. He also handed over to the consuls Lepida's slaves, who were in military custody, but would not allow them to be examined by torture on matters referring to his own family. Drusus, too, the consul-elect, he released from the necessity of having to speak first to the question. Some thought this a gracious act, done to save the rest of the senators from a compulsory assent, while others ascribed it to malignity, on the ground that he would have yielded only where there was a necessity of condemning. On the days of the games which interrupted the trial, Lepida went into the theatre with some ladies of rank, and as she appealed with piteous wailings to her ancestors and to that very Pompey, the public buildings and statues of whom stood there before their eyes, she roused such sympathy that people burst into tears and shouted without ceasing savage curses on Quirinus, to whose childless old age and miserably obscure family one once destined to be the wife of Lucius Caesar and the daughter-in-law of the divine Augustus was being sacrificed. Then, by the torture of the slaves, her infamies were brought to light, and a motion of rebellious blandness was carried which outlawed her. Drusus supported him, though others had proposed a milder sentence. Subsequently, Scaurus, who had had daughter by her, obtained as a concession that her property should not be confiscated. Then at last Tiberius declared that he had himself, too, ascertained from the slaves of Publius Quirinus, 
that Lepida had attempted their master's life by poison. It was some compensation for the misfortunes of great houses, for within a short interval the Carpernii had lost Piso and the Meliae Lepida. That Decimus Silenus was now restored to the Junian family. I will briefly relate his downfall. Though the divine Augustus in his public life enjoyed unshaken prosperity, he was unfortunate at home from the profligacy of his daughter and granddaughter, both of whom he banished from Rome and punished their paramours with death or exile. Calling, as he did, a vice so habitual among men and women, by the awful name of sacrilege and treason, he went far beyond the indulgent spirit of our ancestors, beyond indeed his own legislation. But I will relate the deaths of others with the remaining events of that time, if after finishing the work I have now proposed to myself, I prolong my life for further labours. Decimus Lanus, the paramour of the granddaughter of Augustus, though the only severity he experienced was exclusion from the emperor's friendship, saw clearly that it meant exile. And it was not till Tiberius's reign that he ventured to appeal to the senate and to the prince, in reliance on the influence of his brother Marcus Silanus, who was conspicuous both for his distinguished rank and eloquence. But Tiberius, when Silanus thanked him, replied in the senate's presence, that he too rejoiced at the brother's return from his long foreign tour, and that this was justly allowable, inasmuch as he had been banished, not by a decree of the Senate, or under any law. Still, personally, he said, he felt towards him his father's resentment in all its force, and the return of Silanus had not cancelled the intentions of Augustus. Silanus, after this, lived at Rome without attaining office. It was next proposed to relax the Papia Poppiae law, which Augustus in his old age had passed subsequently to the Julian statutes, for yet further enforcing the penalties on celibacy and for enriching the exchequer. And yet marriages and the rearing of children did not become more frequent so powerful were the attractions of a childless state. Meanwhile, there was an increase in the number of persons imperiled, for every household was undermined by the insinuations of informers, and now the country suffered from its laws, as it had hitherto suffered from its vices. This suggests to me a fuller discussion of the origin of law and of the methods by which we have arrived at the present endless multiplicity and variety of our statutes. Mankind in the earliest age lived for a time without a single vicious impulse, without shame or guilt, and consequently without punishment and restraints. Rewards were not needed when everything right was pursued on its own merits, and as men desired nothing against morality, they were debarred from nothing by fear. When, however, they began to throw off equality, and ambition and violence usurped the place of self-control and modesty. Despotisms grew up, 
and became perpetual among many nations. Some from the beginning, or when tired of kings, preferred codes of laws. These were at first simple, while men's minds were unsophisticated. The most famous of them were those of the Cretans, framed by Minos, those of the Spartans, by Lycurgus, and subsequently those which Solon drew up for the Athenians on a more elaborate and extensive scale. Romulus governed us as he pleased. Then Numa united our people by religious ties and a constitution of divine origin, to which some additions were made by Tullus and Ancus. But Servius Tullius was our chief legislator, to whose laws even kings were to be subject. After Tarquin's expulsion, the people, to check cabals among the senators, devised many safeguards for freedom and for the establishment of unity. Decemvirs were appointed, everything specially admirable elsewhere was adopted, and the twelve tables drawn up, the last specimen of equitable legislation. For subsequent enactments, though occasionally directed against evildoers for some crime, were oftener carried by violence amid class dissensions, with a view to obtain honours not as yet conceded, or to banish distinguished citizens, or for other base ends. Hence the Gracchi, and Saturni, those popular agitators, and Drusus too, as flagrant a corrupter in the Senate's name. Hence the bribing of our allies by alluring promises, and the cheating them by tribunes' vetoes. Even the Italian, and then the civil war, did not pass without the enactment of many conflicting laws, till Lucius Sulla, the dictator, by the repeal or alteration of past legislation, and by many additions, gave us a brief lull in this process to be instantly followed by the seditious proposals of Lepidus, and soon afterwards by the tribunes recovering their license to excite the people just as they chose. And now bills were passed, not only for national objects, but for individual cases, and laws were most numerous when the commonwealth was most corrupt. Cnaeus Pompeius, was then for the third time elected consul to reform public morals. But in applying remedies more terrible than the evils, and repealing the legislation of which he had himself been the author, he lost by arms what by arms he had been maintaining. Then followed twenty years of continuous strife. Custom or law there was none. The vilest deeds went unpunished, while many noble acts brought ruin. At last, in his sixth consulship, Caesar Augustus, feeling his power secure, annulled the decrees of his triumvirate, and gave us a constitution which might serve us in peace under a monarchy. Henceforth, our chains became more galling, and spies were set over us stimulated by rewards under the Papia Popia law, so that if men shrank from the privileges of fatherhood, the state, as universal parent, might possess their ownerless properties. But this espionage became too searching, and Rome and Italy, and Roman citizens everywhere, fell into its clutches. 
many men's fortunes were ruined, and over all there hung a terror, till Tiberius, to provide a remedy, selected by lot five ex-consuls, five ex-praetors, and five senators, by whom most of the legal knots were disentangled, and some light temporary relief afforded. About this same time, he commended to the Senate's favour Nero, Germanicus's son, who was just entering on manhood, and asked them, not without smiles of ridicule from his audience, to exempt him from serving as one of the twenty commissioners, and let him be a candidate for quaestorship five years earlier than the law allowed. His excuse was that a similar decree had been made for himself and his brother at the request of Augustus. But I cannot doubt that even then there were some who secretly laughed at such a petition, though the Caesars were but in the beginning of their grandeur, and ancient usage was more constantly before men's eyes, while also the tie between stepfather and stepson was weaker than that between grandfather and grandchild. The pontificate was likewise conferred on Nero, and on the day on which he first entered the forum, a gratuity was given to the city populace, who greatly rejoiced at seeing a son of Germanicus now grown to manhood. Their joy was further increased by Nero's marriage to Julia, Drusus's daughter. This news was met with favourable comments, but it was heard with disgust that Sejanus was to be the father-in-law of the son of Claudius. The emperor was thought to have polluted the nobility of his house, and to have yet further elevated Sejanus, whom they already suspected of overweening ambition. Two remarkable men died at the end of the year. Lucius Volusius and Seleucius Crispus. Volusius was of an old family, which had, however, never risen beyond the praetorship. He brought into it the consulship. He also held the office of censor for arranging the classes of the knights, and was the first to pile up the wealth which that house enjoyed to a boundless extent. Crispus was of equestrian descent, and grandson of a sister of Caius Sallustius that most admirable Roman historian, by whom he was adopted, and whose name he took. Though his road to preferment was easy, he chose to emulate Mycenaeus, and without rising to a senator's rank, he surpassed in power many who had won triumphs and consulships. He was a contrast to the manners of antiquity, in his elegance and refinement, and in the sumptuousness of his wealth, he was almost a voluptuary. But beneath all this was a vigorous mind, equal to the greatest labours, the more active in proportion as he made a show of sloth and apathy. And so while Mycenaeus lived, he stood next in favour to him, and was afterwards the chief depository of imperial secrets, and accessory to the murder of Postumus Agrippa, till in advanced age he retained the shadow rather than the substance of the emperor's friendship. The same, too, had happened to Mycenaeus, so rarely is it the destiny of power to be lasting, or perhaps a sense of weariness steals over princes when they have bestowed everything, or over favourites when there is nothing left them to desire.
Next followed Tiberius's fourth, Drusus's second consulship, memorable from the fact that father and son were colleagues. Two years previously, the association of Germanicus and Tiberius in the same honour had not been agreeable to the uncle, nor had it the link of so close a natural tie. At the beginning of this year, Tiberius, avowedly to recruit his health, retired to Campania, either as a gradual preparation for long and uninterrupted seclusion, or in order that Drusus alone, in his father's absence, might discharge the duties of the consulship. It happened that a mere trifle, which grew into a sharp contest, gave the young prince the means of acquiring popularity. Domitius Corpulo, an ex-praetor, complained to the Senate that Lucius Sulla, a young noble, had not given place to him at a gladiatorial show. Corpulo had age, national usage, and the feelings of the older senators in his favour. Against him, Mamercus Scaurus, Lucius Aruntius, and other kinsmen of Sulla, strenuously exerted themselves. There was a keen debate, and appeal was made to the precedents of our ancestors, as having censured in severe decrees disrespect on the part of the young, till Drusus argued in a strain calculated to calm their feelings. Corpulo, too, received an apology from Mamercus, who was Sulla's uncle and stepfather, and the most fluent speaker of that day. It was this same Corpulo, who, after raising a cry that most of the roads in Italy were obstructed or impassable through the dishonesty of contractors and the negligence of officials, himself willingly undertook the complete management of the business. This proved not so beneficial to the state as ruinous to many persons, whose property and credit he mercilessly attacked by convictions and confiscations. Soon afterwards, Tiberius informed the Senate by letter that Africa was again disturbed by an incursion of Tacfarinus, and that they must use their judgment in choosing as proconsul an experienced soldier of vigorous constitution who would be equal to the war. Sextus Pompeius caught at this opportunity of venting his hatred against Lepidus, whom he condemned as a poor-spirited and needy man who was a disgrace to his ancestors, and therefore deserved to lose even his chance of the province of Asia. But the Senate were against him, for they thought Lepidus gentle rather than cowardly, and that his inherited poverty, with the high rank in which he had lived without a blot, ought to be considered a credit to, instead of a reproach. And so he was sent to Asia, and with respect to Africa, it was decided that the emperor should choose to whom it was to be assigned. During this debate, Severus Caecina proposed that no magistrate who had obtained a province should be accompanied by his wife. He began by recounting at length how harmoniously he had lived with his wife, who had borne him six children, and how, in his own home, he had observed what he was proposing for the public by having kept her in Italy, though he had himself served forty campaigns in various provinces. With good reason, he said, 
had it been formally decided that women were not to be taken among our allies or into foreign countries. A train of women involves delays through luxury in peace and through panic in war, and converts a Roman army on the march into the likeness of a barbarian progress. Not only is the sex feeble and unequal to hardship, but when it has liberty it is spiteful, intriguing and greedy of power. They show themselves off among the soldiers and have the centurions at their beck. Lately a woman had presided at the drill of the cohorts and the evolutions of the legions. You should yourselves bear in mind that whenever men are accused of extortion, most of the charges are directed against the wives. It is to these that the vilest of the provincials instantly attach themselves. It is they who undertake and settle business. Two persons receive homage when they appear. There are two centres of government, and the women's orders are the more despotic and intemperate. Formerly they were restrained by the opium and other laws. Now, loosed from every bond, they rule our houses, our tribunals, even our armies. A few heard this speech with approval but the majority clamorously objected that there was no proper motion on the subject and that Caecina was no fit censor on so grave an issue. Presently, Valerius Messalinus, Messala's son, in whom the father's eloquence was reproduced, replied that much of the sternness of antiquity had been changed into a better and more genial system. Rome, he said, is not now as formerly beset with wars, nor are the provinces hostile. A few concessions are made to the wants of women, but such as are not even a burden to their husbands' homes, much less to the allies. In all other respects, man and wife share alike, and this arrangement involves no trouble in peace. War, of course, requires that men should be unencumbered. But when they return, what worthier solace can they have after their hardships than a wife's society? But some wives have abandoned themselves to scheming and rapacity. Well, even among our magistrates are not many subject to various passions. Still, that is not a reason for sending no one into a province. Husbands have often been corrupted by the vices of their wives. Are then all unmarried men blameless? The Oppian laws were formally adopted to meet the political necessities of the time, and subsequently there was some remission and mitigation of them on grounds of expediency. It is idle to shelter our own weakness under other names. For it is the husband's fault if the wife transgresses propriety. Besides, it is wrong that because of the imbecility of one or two men, all husbands should be cut off from their partners in prosperity and adversity. And further, a sex naturally weak will be thus left to itself and be at the mercy of its own voluptuousness and the passions of others. Even with a husband's personal vigilance, the marriage tie is scarcely preserved inviolate. 
what would happen were it for a number of years to be forgotten, just as in a divorce. You must not check vices abroad without remembering the scandals of the capital. Drusus added a few words on his own experience as a husband. Princes, he said, must often visit the extremities of their empire. How often had the divine Augustus travelled to west and to the east, accompanied by Livia. He had himself gone to Illyricum, and, should it be expedient, he would go to other countries, not always, however, with a contented mind, if he had to tear himself from a much-loved wife, the mother of his many children. Caecina's motion was thus defeated. At the Senate's next meeting came a letter from Tiberius, which indirectly censured them for throwing on the emperor every political care, and named Marcus Lepidus and Junius Blysus, one of whom was to be chosen proconsul of Africa. Both spoke on the subject, and Lepidus begged earnestly to be excused. He alleged ill health, his children's tender age, his having a daughter to marry, and something more of which he said nothing, was well understood. The fact that Blysus was uncle of Sejanus, and so had very powerful interest. Blysus replied with an affectation of refusal, but not with the same persistency. Nor was he backed up by the acquiescence of flatterers. End of Book 3, Part 2